Good morning. Um, today's scripture reading is from John 16, verses 16 through 22. If you have a Bible or a device, I'd encourage you to get there. And while you're getting there, I'm Megan Stevens. I'm married to Josh. We have Naomi and Zoe. We've been coming here for about a year and a half and have been covenant members for about six months. Let's hear God's word. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us, a little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me, and because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take away that joy from you. In that day... You will ask nothing of me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Megan. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and get there. That's where we'll be this morning. Uh, good morning, church. Merry Christmas. We're in week three of our Advent series. Advent is a season of expectant <clears throat> waiting and preparation. And as a church, we both celebrate that he has come and that he is coming again. So at this point in human history, we are not an expectant waiting for his birth, but we are in expectant waiting for his return. And in this waiting, in this life, there is sorrow. One of my favorite singers is Matt Carney. Does that name ring a bell with anybody? All right, good, a handful of you. But one of my favorite singers is Matt, and he has a song years ago called Closer to Love, a song talking about walking through sorrow in light of the love of the Lord. And the opening verse says this, she got the call today, one out of the gray, and when the smoke cleared, it took her breath away. She said she didn't believe it could happen to me. I guess we're all one phone call from our knees. Some of you can very much relate to that. Experiencing a phone call, some sort of message that brought you to your knees. Whether we can personally relate to that or not, what all of us know is that this life is often marked by sorrow and grief. And sometimes the Christmas season seems to put a spotlight upon the grief in our hearts one truth that we celebrate and remember in the Advent season is that of joy, that in the coming of Christ, we see the coming of joy. In Luke's gospel account, we read that when the angel of the Lord announced the birth of Jesus to the shepherds, he announced it in this way, don't be afraid for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a savior was born for you who is the, who is the Messiah, the Lord. So in the coming of Jesus, his good news brings great joy to people in need. People, you and me, who are living in a, in a world that is stained and marked by sin and has grief as a result. So in the coming of Jesus, we celebrate the coming of joy. Today, I want us to look at the words of Jesus in John 16, where he's talking to his disciples about sorrow and joy. And he doesn't dismiss their sorrow by implying that they won't walk through grief, nor does he ignore the fact that joy is the final chapter of the story. 
He says to them in verse 20 in the CSB translation, you will become sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. So as we are gathered this morning, there is a mixture of both sorrow and joy in our hearts and lives. Romans 12, 15 instructs us that life in the family of God has both. It says rejoice with those who, re who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So we, we don't ignore one or the other. And I pray that the word of God might be an encouragement to us this morning, a reminder of why his good news is good news for us on the daily, no matter if our season is marked by rejoicing or weeping. John 16 is part of the farewell discourse of Jesus, where he is instructing his disciples in a variety of subjects in the upper room prior to his betrayal, the arrest, subsequent crucifixion. The Sunday prior to this in the storyline is Palm Sunday. He rides into uh, the city of Jerusalem humbly on a donkey to the shouts of Hosanna. The crowds love him, and yet it all starts to turn the other direction in the final days of his earthly life. The principle of sorrow turning to joy, that promise from Jesus here is is one of the overarching themes of the scriptures. So imagine as we are looking at this passage, we are looking at a small passage uh, through a small lens, but it's reminding us of the big overall picture of Genesis to Revelation, one of the themes that we see. Verse 16, again, Jesus is teaching his disciples, in a little while you will no longer see me. Again, in a little while you will see me. Then some of his disciples said to one another, what is this he's telling us? In a little while you will not see me again in a little while you will see me and again because i'm going to the father they said what is this he's saying in a little while we don't know what he's talking about i love the scriptures and their honesty because we'd be right there with them like we're not tracking with you jesus and instead of just asking him you can imagine they're whispering to one another hoping not to look silly as if they should know what he's talking about. But Jesus loves his disciples then and now. He loves them enough not to leave them in the dark. Verse 19, a subtle reminder of the divinity of Jesus. It begins with Jesus knew. Jesus knew. Knew they wanted to ask him, guys, stop being proud. Just ask me. And so he said to them, are you asking one another about what I said? In a little while, you will not see me. Again, in a little while, you will see me. Truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn, but the world will rejoice. You will become sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. In a little while, Jesus is saying that in the upcoming hours, he will be betrayed by Judas, he will be arrested, and that will set off a chain of events that will culminate on Friday this week when Jesus is crucified on the cross. And so that little while between Friday and Saturday Leading up to Sunday, the disciples won't see him, and yet on Easter, they will see him again. Truly, I tell you, you'll weep and mourn, but the world will rejoice. You will weep and mourn, he tells them. While the disciples don't fully grasp what's going to go down in the days ahead, Jesus does. He's not surprised by any of it, from the betrayal to his death to his resurrection. In the, in the same way, he knows the events that are upcoming. He knows the grief that his disciples will walk through. He knows they will experience deep sorrow in what will transpire in the hours and days ahead. Brothers and sisters, the Lord is familiar, familiar with the grief that you are experiencing or will experience in the future. 
Remember at Christmas time, one reality that we celebrate is that our God came near. We serve a near, present, and relational God. He's not surprised by, he's not dismissive, he's not indifferent to your sorrow. Disciples, you will weep and mourn, but the world will rejoice. Meaning the world that is worshiping sin, the world that is worshiping itself, will rejoice at the death of Jesus. The enemy of our souls who's seeking to steal, kill, and destroy will take delight in the death of the Messiah, wrongly assuming that will, that will be the end of the story. Loved ones, understand that the patterns of the world that we are born into, these patterns are opposed to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is upside down from the world that we live in. So when the world says, live for yourself, our king says, no, we reject that and we live for him and we live for the sake of others. When the world says, bow and serve this created thing, our, God, our, our king commands us to reject lifeless idolatry and instead worship our life-giving God. We've seen in our journey through Acts that we began in September that we'll pick back up on the 31st. But we've seen in this journey how some receive Jesus and others reject him. Others resist him. That hasn't changed. That storyline hasn't changed. Jesus knows the world that is proudly unwilling to bow and worship to him will rejoice at his death. Middle of verse 20, you will become sorrowful. Why will the disciples experience sorrow at the death of Jesus? I see three reasons, all of which are reasons that we can relate to as we experience sorrow in our lives. The first is sorrow over loss. This is the most obvious to all of us. The disciples will grieve over losing someone who was dear and most cherished in their life. They will grieve over the hole that is left in their lives due to the physical absence of Christ. They will also experience sorrow over evil. The disciples will grieve over seeing their, their Messiah mistreated and mocked. They will grieve when he's taken away and arrested, when he's spit upon and flogged, when the soldiers nail him to the cross. They will grieve over what seems like evil's victory. The disciples will also grieve over their, their own disappointment and confusion. In the moment, assuming, thinking, we thought he would be the victorious Messiah. We thought he was the conquering king. We thought his reign in life would never end. We thought it was going to be up and to the right from Palm Sunday on. Sorrow over loss, over evil, over disappointment and confusion, all of which we can relate to in our lives. Just like you, I have loved ones who I dearly miss, whose physical absence grieves me. Today's world is a continual reminder of how prevalent evil is. We grieve this as people of the light and of truth. We grieve over disappointment in our life, unrealized dreams, unrealized plans that we thought were going one way and now just is going the other way. Brothers and sisters, there are two specific lies that we are prone to believe as it relates to sorrow. The first lie is that we won't experience sorrow if we do what is right. So this is prosperity gospel thinking. If you just have enough faith, if you just pray hard enough, if you do X, Y, Z, then you'll be healthy, wealthy, you will avoid trouble. And such thinking is far more prevalent in our minds than we might realize. When we turn our relationship with the Lord into a contract and say, Lord, I'm doing all these things for you. I'm, I'm just really trying to keep the law so good. And then 
suffering or sorrow hits our lives and we think, come on, Lord, I thought we had a deal. I thought if I did this, then you'd keep me out of trouble. That's false gospel prosperity thinking. By God's grace, we're not in a contract. For if we were, we'd be the ones breaking it constantly. Rather, we are in a covenant with the Lord, kept in Him by His grace alone. And our Lord promises that, that while this world does have trouble, He has overcome it. The disciples in this story, they're walking in obedience to the Lord Jesus. They are doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord. And yet they still experience sorrow, as do the people of the Lord ever since. The second lie that we believe oftentimes is that we should not grieve as Christ-following people. That to grieve or to shed tears is a mark of spiritual immaturity or weakness, or that to admit grief or sadness, it means we don't have hope. It's nonsense, my friends. That's nonsense. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that death has a sting. He's writing in the midst of giving resurrection and gospel hope to the people of the church, but he's not implying in this life or in this fallen world that death doesn't have a sting. It does. And we've all experienced that with loved ones. Yes, as believers in Christ, our grief is different than the world's. We grieve with hope, and yet we still weep. We still grieve. Here in John 16, Jesus is saying, disciples, you will become sorrowful. And then he gives this promise, but your sorrow will turn to joy. Sorrow turning to joy would be through the suffering of the cross. Not around it, but through it. The deepest of sorrow that we'll, they'll experience on Friday and Saturday will turn to the greatest of joys on Easter morning. Charles Spurgeon said this, it's most remarkable and instructive that the apostles do not appear in their sermons or epistles to have spoken of the death of our Lord with any kind of regret. The Gospels mention their distress during the actual occurrence of the crucifixion, but after the resurrection, and especially after Pentecost, we hear of no such grief. Their sorrow turns to joy. We see that in their writings. Then Jesus moves to this illustration to emphasize what he's saying Verse 21, when a woman is in labor, she has pain because her time has come. But when she has given birth to a child, she no longer remembers the suffering because of the joy that a person has been born into the world. So you also have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice and no one will take away your joy from you. <clears throat> so in this illustration, Jesus is telling them that the cause of such great pain will end up causing such great joy. Some of you might beg to differ with Jesus saying, no, I remember the suffering. I remember the pain. All right. But you can also relate to Jesus saying the sorrow of the labor turned to the joy of new life that you held in your hands. The sorrow of death upon a cross turns to the life-giving, death-crushing joy of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And for all those who are in Christ, sharing in the promise of his resurrection. For Jesus says to them, I will see you again. Your, your hearts will rejoice and no one will take away your joy from you. Joy in Christ that is anchored to him and his resurrection is permanent for the Christian. It can't be snatched away by the enemy or even our earthly death, for death is gain 
for the Christ follower. It can't be taken away when circumstances shift or as the song It Is Well writes that when sea billows, when sorrows of sea billows roll, it can't be taken away when those, when those sea billows roll. What are you anchoring your joy to, my friend? What are you anchoring your joy to? In preparing for today, I read this quote from a Scottish preacher and it, it resonated with me, this illustration. He said, we all tend to hang heavy weights on the thinnest wires. We hang the heavy weight of happiness or joy on fragile things that easily and quickly can be taken from us. Things like health, friends, children, jobs, homes, or possessions. These are all good blessings from the Lord, but they are inadequate as a foundation for lasting joy because they're so uncertain and not permanent. They're the thinnest of wires to look to when we experience sorrow and grief. But joy in Christ is certain. <clears throat> it's permanent. It's a steady anchor when the sea billows roll. Jesus says to his disciples prior to the cross, prior to the resurrection, I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice and no one will take away your joy from you. He says to us who are living after his resurrection, after the ascension, and before his second advent, he says, I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy from you. And while we wait for his bodily return in victory, he is with us now. Our triune God is present, he's near, he's dwelling in his people, and we have living hope as a result. Peter writes this in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. So that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire. So the proven character of your faith may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though not seen him, you believe in him and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Jesus says your sorrow will turn to joy. At one time in God's creation, there was no sorrow, only abundant, unashamed, lavish, unhindered joy. Genesis 1 and 2 tell the story of God's good and harmonious creation. But then Genesis 3 describes how through the rebellion of God's created people, sin enters the world and sorrow does as well. Grief now over loss, grief over evil. Grief over disappointment and confusion. As a result, since Genesis 3, our world has a mixture of both joy and sorrow. Pastor Barnabas Piper wrote this in his book, Hoping for Happiness. We tend to think of being happy or sad, he writes. But scripture depicts a sort of happiness in the midst of sadness. In this life, we will have trouble. But in this life, we will have happiness and joy. This, this doesn't mean being an emotional yo-yo, even though it will sometimes feel that way. 
but rather he writes experiencing two things at once, one being the damage caused by sin, the other being the happiness or joy given by grace through God. We live in a world damaged by sin, and for those of us who have, kept, who have put our faith and trust in Christ, we have this anchored joy in the Lord in all times, both rejoicing and weeping. And sometimes, as Psalm 30, verse 5 writes, weeping may stay overnight, but there is joy in the morning. Sometimes the little while that Jesus speaks of there in John 16 is overnight. Sometimes it's a couple days. Sometimes it's a shorter season, months, maybe a handful of years. Other times the sorrow remains and will be there in our hearts and lives in varying degrees this side of heaven. And yet the Bible still speaks to the reality that we can rejoice. Paul writes in Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always. He's writing such spirit-inspired words through while under house arrest. Or 2 Corinthians 6.10, Paul says that in the midst of grieving, he is always rejoicing. So he's not dismissing the reality of sorrow in his life. And at the same time, he's not dismissing the good news of Jesus that promises to us that in the end, our sorrow will turn to joy. He can rejoice in all circumstances and seasons. And why can he do that? Why can he rejoice in the Lord always? Because of Jesus' promise here in John 16, spoken prior to the cross and resurrection, promising that even death, even burial in a tomb will not hold him. That while there is deep sorrow on a Friday, there will be joy on Easter morning. And what the Lord Jesus says he will do he does. And so when Jesus promises that he's returning again, that he's preparing a place in heaven for his people, that he will never leave nor forsake his people, that he will be with us to the very end of this age, his promises are yes and amen. Yes and amen. Over and over. Our triune God is a covenant-keeping God to a thousand generations faithful over and over and over. Your sorrow will turn to joy. That's the gospel story. The sorrow over loss, evil, and disappointment that entered the world in Genesis 3 is overcome through Jesus, the man of sorrows, who was acquainted with our grief, who was prophesied of in the Old Testament, who then came in the flesh in the New Testament, conceived by the Spirit, born of a virgin. Hebrews 5, 7 says, During his earthly life, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. His sorrow for our joy, his death for our life, the cause of great pain, the greatest injustice in the history of humanity, the cross of Christ, would end up being the greatest cause of joy, the greatest triumph in the world on the third day. Sorrow was not the end of the story for Jesus Christ, and it won't be for those who are in him either. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since... We also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And by doing so, he promises that our sorrow turns to joy in the end. As we keep our eyes on our 
risen, reigning, ruling Jesus in this life, we can rejoice always. And we can rejoice as we grieve, as we live with hope and joy in the midst of seasons of sorrow. For one sweet day, while weeping may be for the night, there is joy in the eternal morning. A heavenly morning with all its brightness and beauty is coming, brothers and sisters. John writes in Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a, a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his people's. And God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. There was no grief in Genesis 1 and 2. And where this grand story is headed, loved ones, death will be no more. Grief, crying, pain will be no more. In this life, we experience that in part. That promise in part, one day it will be in full. Paul writes in Romans 8, 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. A glory is coming, brothers and sisters. So if your world feels like the weather today, a glory is coming, brothers and sisters, a glory that is far greater than we can imagine, a glory that is ours for those in Christ, for Jesus' promises are sure and true, yes and amen, over and over. This past summer, Heather and I went, on, uh, went to Maine on vacation. It was amazing for a variety of reasons, including the lobster, but one was the rugged seacoast of that area. I'd never been to a coast with, with a rugged look like this. Massive boulders of granite that remained unmoved and unshaken by the crashing waves. I heard a pastor equate that to what joy in Christ is like in the midst of sorrow. The sea billows of grief may be rolling, and yet our joy in the Lord is anchored, not to our fickleness, not to things that shift like sand, but to the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. It doesn't ignore the waves that are crashing, nor does it ignore the reality that the granite isn't moving, and joy is ours. As we fix our eyes on Jesus, may we do so together. As fellow living stones connected, anchored to Christ, our cornerstone. As we weep, may we do so together. Listen to the practical and gospel encouragement from 2 Corinthians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are, who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so also through Christ our comfort overflows close. How beautiful. The Lord doesn't just save us and strand us, but he saves us toward a people so that we might live out these one another such as that. As the God of all comfort comforts us, may we turn toward one another, toward those who grieve and be an in the flesh, God glorifying, prayerful presence in the lives of our, of our brothers and sisters. And when we do walk through sorrow, and we will May we draw the strength from the family of God that he's brought us into. 
the comfort from the family of God that he's brought us into for our good and for his glory. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are true and you speak what is true. Thank you for taking on flesh and dwelling among us. Thank you for giving of yourself selflessly and sacrificially upon the cross for our joy and life. Thank you that through faith in you, we have an unbreakable union with the Father, that we can talk to our Father in heaven all the time and about everything in prayer. Thank you that you are near, present, and dwelling in and with us, and that you are the one true God of all comfort. Help us as your people to be a source of comfort and strength to one another in times of sorrow. Help us grieve well through loss and evil and disappointment and confusion. Help us grieve well as people of hope and people who depend upon you as the unshakable cornerstone to our joy. Help us to, be, to live in a sin-damaged world with our eyes fixed on you, the source of our faith. Thank you, Jesus, that through the gospel, our sorrow turns to joy. Thank you that one day there will be no pain, no sorrow, no death. That will be the end of the story, and joy in Christ will be ours forever. We trust you, Jesus. We love you. We depend upon you, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Psalm 16 says this, Protect me, God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have nothing good besides you. As for the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones. All my delight is in them. The sorrows of those who take another God for themselves will multiply. I will not pour out their drink offerings and blood, and I will not speak their names with my lips. Lord, you are my portion and my cup of blessing. You hold my future. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I will bless the Lord who counsels me. Even at night when my thoughts trouble me, I always let the Lord guide me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My body also rests securely for you will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. Amen.